In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... A lot of them aren't even pretending to be insurance. Testing down. Remove him from office. No justice, no peace. Cast a vote that will make you proud. The Betches Sup Podcast. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Betches Sup Podcast. It's Amanda, and today we are here with David Litt. David Litt is a former speechwriter for President Obama and author of the comedic memoir, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, and most recently, Democracy in One Book or Less. Hi, David. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, I, so I started the book last night. I'm almost, I, I got pretty far for starting it at night. And I was, I was thinking that the title Democracy in One Book or Less is pretty accurate because within like 50 pages, I was like, oh, I, I know so much more now. <laughs> That's the goal. I feel like I'm not the kind of person who uh, finishes books <laughs> about political science. Um, I'm the kind of person who aspires to. So I, I really wrote this for people like me, where it was like, all right, I'm going to get through as much as I can. Hopefully, you, you want to get through all of it. But yeah. no matter what, I feel like you will know more about the country and uh, why it's not really working the way it's supposed to. Yeah, yeah. I almost wondered if maybe a, a certain president that we have right now might consider reading it just because it is it does promise to maybe be slightly less than one whole book, which maybe he could manage. <laughs> well, yeah, I was about to say, I, th- I feel like I just hope he would consider reading, period. But right. <laughs> if he embraces that, um, then yeah, I think it would be a great reading material in the White House. Something tells me they probably wouldn't really like it, but that's okay. Right. right. So David, uh, can you sort of tell me the path that you took towards uh, writing this book and how that path sort of led you to just decide this was a book you wanted to write? When I left the White House in 2016, the beginning of 2016, I knew I wanted to write a White House memoir, um, which I ended up being my book, Thanks Obama, and something that was more about like the times I embarrassed myself in front of the president, not you know how important I was because I was yeah. not that important. And then I didn't think I wanted to write another book until Trump got elected. And suddenly I started over and over again fixating on this problem that I had seen in the Obama White House, but was even more apparent now that Trump was president, which was that on all of these issues, whether it's like gun violence, immigration reform, the environment, we're seeing it right now in terms of how we respond to COVID. The American people keep wanting one thing. We keep asking for one thing from our government and our government keeps doing the opposite. And that's not a partisan statement. I mean, it's just a matter of we want one thing from our democracy and our democracy isn't giving us what we want. And this made me realize that despite the fact that I worked in the White House for a couple of years and I majored in American history and I know all the words to Schoolhouse Rock, and I still didn't really know how our government worked. And so I started to look into it. And what I really wanted to focus on was, you know, I'm 33 years old, so I am still by most definitions a pretty young person. But how has government changed? How has democracy changed in my lifetime? And what I found is that almost everything has changed. The government, the democracy that we are living in right now is totally different than the one that I was born into. And it's so much less representative. And once you understand that and how that works, 
all of these things going on in our country right now, they make a lot more sense and it becomes a lot clearer how we might start fixing them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask you because I think I and a lot of our listeners are in that age range. And it is a little bit unsettling to sort of think about it in that context that, wow, over my lifetime, I was born into a world completely different or a democracy completely different than the one now. It's very unsettling. It's a weird thing for me about being in my early 30s where you start to say, like, you know, I, I'm not telling you know, old stories and yeah. you know, back in my day. But you start to say, oh, the world has changed, not just in history, but in my own personal you know, experience as a person on this planet. And especially realizing, like, it's not always better. In some ways, it's much better. And I, I absolutely believe that we can continue to make it better. But, you know, there's especially on this one key issue, which is whether or not our democracy represents the people, we have really been backsliding. And I think understanding that backslide, on one hand, it's a little depressing, but on the other hand, it also is kind of like validating in this weird way, because the reason it feels like everything is falling apart is sometimes because everything's falling apart. We're not crazy. So that's nice to know. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of in there that really it's effectively undoes a lot of the gaslighting that we've, we've been through with like actual sort of facts. Um, in the book, you describe how there are kind of two countries. It's a country of, of voters and a country of non-voters. Can you kind of explain, explain this for our listeners and how the former basically creates conditions that the latter live in, which is sort of what you were saying, that we no longer have a government that is representative of the people. How does that work? So in any democracy, there's this fundamental question of who is the people? You know, the democracy is government of the people, but who, who is, makes up that group? And in the United States, even more so than almost every other developed democracy, most people, or well, actually the majority of eligible voters do vote, but a huge number of eligible voters do not. And a lot of people are not eligible voters who would be eligible in other countries or would have been eligible at other times in our history. And so what we have done is we've created this system where one of the most effective ways to win elections is not to persuade people to agree with your ideas, it's to find the people who don't agree with your ideas and then make sure they can't vote or that it's just very, very difficult for them to vote. And what that means ultimately is while we have elections, they don't do as good a job as they should at the central role of elections, which is holding politicians accountable. You know, elections are our way of hiring and firing the people who lead our country. And when you're in a situation where it's too easy to keep people from voting, that hiring and firing mechanism breaks down. And that's what's happening. And certainly we're in yeah. danger of having it happen even more. Yeah. You start the book with a look at Mitch McConnell, who you return to uh, frequently and how he has in some ways kind of single-handedly changed politics over the past 20 or so years. Why do you think understanding Mitch McConnell and his motivations is a useful framework for understanding how our democracy has kind of gone off the rails? To me, Mitch McConnell had this insight and he wasn't the only one who had it, but I think he was the most powerful person to have it. And he was the most focused on it for the longest time. And the insight was this, that unlike in most types of competitions in politics, the players write the rules. So Mitch McConnell, it turns out, um, started his life as a baseball player. He, he was hoping to make the varsity team. He got cut and he turned to student, student politics, like, you know, his high school politics and then eventually to college uh, politics and national politics after that. And he is a huge baseball fan, but the difference between 
the sport that he originally saw himself playing and the quote-unquote sport that he plays now is that he has focused on rewriting the rule book to make it easier for his team to win. And so while many of us pay attention to politics, but we pay attention to the players on the field, Mitch McConnell for decades was really behind the scenes leading this effort to rewrite the rules. And it largely worked. Um, One of the things that makes me ultimately hopeful about the future is that I don't think it's going to work nearly as well anymore because we've started to notice what he's doing. But I think he's at the center of this. And that's why I I started the book talking about him and also by going to Louisville and trying to crash a party at his old frat house, which seemed very important to me at the time, even though I never quite made it in. Yeah, yeah. As, as I was reading you, it made me think like if I could get in a time machine, I would go back in time and get Mitch McConnell a better baseball coach so that maybe he could have <laughs> been a little bit better and maybe this wouldn't have happened to all of us. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's one of those weird uh, quirks of history where, you know, if uh, a coach had been a little bit more forgiving or a, you know, 14-year-old had been just a little bit, you know, had a little bit more zip on his fastball, we would be living in a totally different country today. Uh, But sadly, those things didn't happen. And here we are. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit more about when you did go to his alma mater. Uh, It's the University of Louisville, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, so you went there and what was your intention? It, It 
what were you looking for and what did you find? I would say my intention was kind of like Nicolas Cage, National Treasure <laughs> style. I assume there's some kind of artifact or, you know, uh, mystery yeah. to be uncovered. I guess in the same way that if I was writing a book about rock and roll, I might have gone to Abbey Road and like, you know, relived yeah. that Beatles photo. The To me, writing a book about how our democracy has gone off the rails it needed to start with a Mitch McConnell pilgrimage. And particularly because when I started writing this book, I understood the broad strokes. I knew that I was going to write about voting rights and voter suppression and gerrymandering and judges. I had the topics, but I didn't, I was not an expert in any of this stuff. So it was almost like a, um, my entry point into this was just to say somewhere in Mitch McConnell's life, somewhere in the, with this guy, um, is the key to understanding what has gone wrong with our government and how we fix it. I mean, I, I think I say this, in the book, but I spent more time thinking about Mitch McConnell over the last three years than I think I spent about thinking about anyone who isn't either my wife or my cats. Yeah, yeah. Um, so something we've been hearing about a lot in recent weeks is voter fraud, or more like the specter of voter fraud. Uh, this book, it has so much like historical references and it's just, that are really fun and interesting. Um, in your research, did you find that raising the specter of voter fraud in order to disenfranchise people or minimize their impact on an election, is that anything new? Absolutely not. One of the my favorite stories from the book that I learned about was in New Jersey in the early 1800s. So I had no idea if this was true. And I'm actually recording this from New Jersey right now. So a, um, a shout out to the Garden State because in the beginning of American history, women could vote in New Jersey and only in New Jersey. Not all women, in fact, not most women, but a few women had voting rights. And in the early 1800s, the New Jersey legislature got together and for a variety of reasons, they just said, okay, we're going to take that back. We're going to disenfranchise women, which at the time you could do before the 20th Amendment. And 20th Amendment? 19th. 19th Amendment, in, in 1920, right? Yeah. I'm not totally, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is just my book on the Constitution, but I can't keep the amendments straight. Um, the, uh, but the point being that the, the reason that the state legislators in New Jersey gave for disenfranchising women was not honest. They didn't say what they were doing. Instead, what they said was, we have this problem where men are voting and then dressing up in women's clothes and then voting a second time. And that's why we can't have women vote. Now, obviously, first of all, the solution to that should be, if this was real, you would try to discipline the men who are committing fraud, not the women right. whose clothes they're dressing up in. But more importantly, this idea of saying, oh, we're not manipulating our elections, we're protecting our elections. That has been a constant thread through American history and through the history of democracies all over the world. So it doesn't mean that it's not sometimes true. Protecting elections is important. But you have to look at those claims and particularly when they're being used to disenfranchise people, you need to assume that those claims are likely in bad faith until you know we can prove otherwise. And certainly when it comes to what the Trump administration is doing right now, um, these are it's a perfect example of these claims that are completely yeah. baseless and are just designed to make it harder for people to vote. Totally. One of my favorite parts in the book is you quote John Adams talking about, uh, warning about expanding voting rights, and he says, there will be no end to it. New claims will arise. Women will demand the vote. Lads from 12 to 21 will think their rights are not enough attended to, and every man who has not a farthing will demand an equal voice like with any other. And I read that, and I was like, dope. That sounds amazing. <laughs> right. Well, and, and Ben Franklin agreed with you. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I think is really interesting about American history, because we're an older democracy, I mean, we're the oldest modern democracy, we are in some ways living in the past 
more so than many other countries. So for a, an example of that is this battle early on in American history between the John Adams view that you just described and Ben Franklin's view, which is basically voting rights are ingrained in us. I don't think that he would have gone so far as to say that women should vote, um, mm -hmm. but he certainly thought that people without property should be able to vote. And, so, and, and he articulated this general view that voting rights are innate. They're not privileges, they're rights. And that tension, that, art, that clash has defined our democracy because today most people agree with exactly what you said, which is like, yeah, of course, people should be able to vote. That's not a problem. That, that would be a good thing. But our election laws and the structure of our elections was really built starting in this John Adams world where the idea of the wrong people voting was pretty scary. And so a lot of the, the tension that we see is that we talk about voting rights. We believe that we have voting rights, but President Trump recently referred to voting privileges. Mm -hmm. And from a legal standpoint, unfortunately, he's right. Yeah. Too often we have voting privileges, even though from a moral standpoint, he's totally wrong. Yeah, absolutely. David, is our democracy functioning right now? I think that's a really tricky question. I would love to be able to say yes <laughs> or no, but I think the answer is that our democracy is never functioning perfectly. At the same time, it's definitely functioned better than it functions today. So I want to start because this is, you know, a pretty depressing moment in American yeah. history where by saying, if you considered what we are going through, Americans, not just Democrats, by the way, but Americans of any political persuasion who care about democracy, what we have to fight for, um, you know, we, you compare that to what John Lewis had to go through when he was in his early 20s and beginning his march for civil rights. Or you look at what a labor leader might have had to go through in the 1900s um, or someone standing up to machine politicians in big cities uh, earlier in the 20th century. Those people would happily trade places with us. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we, we still have a lot of power and we have, we have less to risk, even though there's a lot that we do have to put on the line. All that said, what I think is really notable here is that compared to how our democracy was working when you and I were taught about democracy, it's functioning way less well. Yeah. Um, and that is both in terms of our elections and then also the fact that even after we have our elections, it's become almost impossible to make big changes even when Americans want to see those changes happen. So, you know, the short answer is, I wouldn't say our democracy is doomed. It's not dysfunctional in any objective way, but not, not working great. What's one change that you think could happen today that might have the biggest impact on having a more representative democracy and expanding the electorate? The biggest changes that could happen today mostly involve the election. Um, you know, uh, the election or like a like an Ebenezer Scrooge moment for Bill Barr or Donald Trump or something yeah. like that. But, you know, barring any sort of go ghost of Christmas past type yeah. visitations, the, the biggest changes we could see quickly would involve... Um, passing, reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act, which is something President Obama talked about recently in his eulogy for John Lewis, but then going further. So um, automatic voter registration would make an enormous difference. And then to talk about one that we don't see as often, immigration reform is hugely important as a type of voting reform because we've gone such a long time without a pathway to citizenship for immigrants and our legal immigration process has become backlogged, not just by accident, but under the Trump administration on purpose. They've sabotaged our legal immigration system. So we have more people living here who are from other countries who in the past would have been able to vote, but who now are not able to vote. And 
that has also become a major problem in terms of voting. So you look at any of these things, and I think those kinds of changes could theoretically happen January 21st, 2021, and they would make an enormous impact right away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as I was reading the book, I would sort of go back and forth between being kind of astounded by how far our democracy seems to be from fulfilling its potential. And also, as you were saying, like how original the concept of representative democracy was and how radical it was. I think you have a stat in there that we're a very, very tiny minority of humans who've lived on the planet who live under any sort of representative government. Um, Yet now so many countries kind of like beat us at our own game and surpass us with the size of their electorates. How do you want people to feel after reading this book? How do you want us to come away from it? Well, I'll tell you how I feel in general. And I I guess I hope that people would feel sort of similar, which is I feel incredibly lucky to live in America. And I feel incredibly proud of what America stands for in theory and what America has been able to do at its best. At the same time, I feel pretty embarrassed about how we're doing right now. Um, And that's an understatement. And I think what inspires me about that is that if you look at the history of America, ultimately, it's been bumpy and there's been a lot of moving backwards in addition to moving forward. But the exciting thing about being an American is that it's our job to fix it. And... um, Stephen Sondheim in, a, in one of his songs that I think got cut actually for Assassins, but he, he described uh, democracy as an idea about tomorrow, the idea that we can fix ourselves tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think that idea is still there. And so I, I think on one hand, um, I hope people feel a sense of urgency that, you know, that idea may not be there forever, but also feel a sense of uplift that we have the power to change ourselves. And, and that is, as you said, not something that most people throughout human history have been able to say. So like, how cool is that? We can do something about this. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And just as a last curiosity, what's the best uh, piece of advice President Obama ever gave you? (laughs) I'm trying to remember, you know, because most of the time it wasn't like uh, when I would go into the Oval, we were talking about a speech, we were talking about the speech. He wasn't like, let me tell you about when I was your age. But I'm thinking about, um, I'll tell you something that I indirect, which is the, I think what the last time I saw him in like a speech writing context, he was making fun of me because I didn't, it was a, it was an event with a tuxedo. It was like a black tie event, but I didn't know. So I had on a a suit and like a very bright red tie. And so we were all in the service elevator going back and he just started making fun of me for not wearing a tux. So I think I learned from that, like it never hurts to be overdressed. Um, That's important. And then the other thing that I really have to say um, you know, there's a lot of things I admire about President Obama. Something that I saw watching him and that I tried to to learn from, it's just very specific. He always, whenever there was something new, whenever there was like a new technology coming out or a new trend happening, you know, it's very easy to to look at that and say, here's why this could end in disaster. And often that's true. There's a good case to be made for why this is going to go really poorly. But he always looked at it and said, how can this be part of the solution? no matter what. And I think he was just oriented that way. And I think that flowed through the entire White House and the administration of saying, how do we look at these changes happening in our country, in our world, and figure out how they can be part of building the kind of country that we need. And that's not the way that I'm hardwired. I have to do that intentionally. You know, yeah. it's not, it doesn't just happen. But I think it's, it's so important. And uh, so that's like a, I don't know, kind of a random, but um, yeah. ho- hopefully a helpful piece of, of advice yeah. or at least life lesson I got from him. 
So what you're saying is any day now, Barack Obama's going to drop a TikTok <laughs> and embrace the new technology. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't, th- this is now like so far outside my lane because I think that's yeah. like a Chinese government issue. Of course. Uh, but other than that, yeah, like if this was, you know, when, when I was at the White House and a new, like a new, there were new social media technologies being rolled out, especially in the second term, the question always became, okay, how do we use this? What do we do with it? How do we meet people where they are? Rather yeah. than saying, oh, no, this is, you know, things are so much better back when, you know, everyone's reading books. Yeah. Like, I believe in books. I wrote a book. But at the same time, embracing the new is like, uh, it can do a lot. And it's, and it's not easy to do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, David. Again, the book is called Democracy in One Book or Less. The, uh, the outro to our podcast is until the return of democracy, which I think <laughs> fits. We either say until the end of democracy or the return of democracy. I'm going to say the, the end in the, in the spirit of optimism today. So until the end of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Sub Podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to SUP at Betches.com. Betches.